We'll begin our reading at Romans chapter 6, verse 15, and then we'll read down through verse 4 of chapter 7, just for context. Romans 6, 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when we were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth, for the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man." Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who, raised, who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we are dead to the law, that we have been married to another, even our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we might bring forth fruit unto God. Have mercy upon us as we embark on this study of Romans 7, and in particular of the law of marriage, that we might grow in our apprehension of these things and in obedience to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We return now to the study of the book of Romans. Having looked at the book of Zephaniah, just a brief review of chapters 1 through 6 of Romans. The Dutch annotations can say concerning this letter, this epistle was written to confirm them in the doctrine of the Holy Gospel against all errors, schisms, and offenses that rose up and contains in it a short and solid exposition of the principal articles of the Christian religion and of all the benefits which in and through Christ we receive from God. In other words, Romans is like Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a summation of the law, the benefits of God, the blessings of God, and the duties imposed on us. So is Romans for the Christian. It's a summary of the gospel, all the benefits we have in Christ, the duties required of us. If you recall, 
Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 1, verse 17 is the introduction and theme of this epistle, the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. That's the theme of the book. But then in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, the apostle labors to prove the depravity of man. It is universal, Jews and Gentiles. You can't say God's a respecter of persons because my face looks like Jacob's. No, God will judge you. And therefore he concludes in verse 20 of chapter 3, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified before God. So he proves then that justification is not by works, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Then in chapter 3, verse 21, he preaches the gospel of justification by faith alone. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. This is the only way by which you may be reconciled to God through believing in Jesus Christ. So he teaches that doctrine, that it is by faith alone, by God's grace alone. He asserts it, he defines it, he proves it, he supports it, and he illustrates it. And that takes up the rest through chapter 5, verse 21. For example, chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Jews and Gentiles. All who believe are reconciled to God by his grace through faith alone. Then in chapter 6, justification being only in Christ and by faith alone given to us by God's superabounding grace as we saw at the end of chapter 5 that grace does not encourage lawlessness this is the burden of chapter 6 the whole chapter verses 17 and 18 of chapter 6 but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Gospel grace does not abolish nature, it perfects it and causes obedience and slavery to righteousness. Which brings us then, after this review, to chapter 7 itself, especially to the theme of the dominion of the law. We'll look at this in four parts, matching the four verses of chapter 7. First, knowledgeable brethren in the law's dominion. Second, the wife's binding and loosing, third, an adulteress or no, and then fourth, second marriage and fruit unto God. First then, knowledgeable brethren and the law's dominion. And just to mention, we'll look at these four verses today, and then we'll look at the topic of marriage and the dominion of marriage, the law of marriage, throughout the Bible, starting God willing next week. First then, verse 1. Know ye not, brethren... For I speak to them that know the law. Know ye not could imply that they did not know. Are you ignorant? In other words, do you know this? Or are you ignorant of this fact concerning the law? He calls them brethren. This is in the what we call vo the vocative mood. O brethren. Know ye not, O brethren. He's appealing to them. 
in, a, in an emphatic way as his brothers in Christ to hear what he's saying. And then he asserts that they did in fact know the law, for I speak to them that know the law. Now here it is law as law, law as a principle of command. This could apply to the Mosaic law concerning marriage or to the natural law concerning marriage written on the hearts of all men. The law perhaps of marriage and divorce and remarriage, that sort of thing. The law of marriage, the husband's dominion over the wife. All these are entailed in this idea of law. So they know the law and he says, do you not know how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? Now this dominion of the law, that particular law now he's talking about, it is the Lord over man, that law, bringing us back to chapter 6, that the law held us in bondage. We are under the grace of God rather than under the law, and we saw what that meant. It means that we are not under a covenant characterized as law, but a covenant characterized as grace. Because the law commands, but it cannot help you, but the grace of God can help you. It can bring salvation, in fact, and can enable in sanctification actual obedience to righteousness, as we saw again from chapter 6. But this law he's talking about is that which condemns because you cannot keep it, but offers you no way of salvation. This is the law of the covenant of works. And this law, he says, has dominion over a man. Now, there are different words that are used in the New Testament for man. One is andros, where we get the name Andrew from. It means one who is manlike, Andrew, an adult male or a husband in context. That's not this word. This word is anthropos, man generally speaking, male and female, young or old. It doesn't matter. Are you human? Are you of mankind? Are you descended from Adam? Well, if you are, then this applies to you. While you're alive, as long as you live in your natural state, you are under this law, this arrangement. It has dominion over you. Now, this life that he's talking about, as long as he liveth, again is under this covenant of works. Law commands without any promise. It requires perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. But it will not help you to keep those commandments. And it will not forgive you if you do not obey. God said to Adam, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. There's no room for repentance. There's no room for delay. There's no room for pardon or a mediator. Do it yourself. Do it all the way. And do it perfectly or death. That's what the law says. This is the wages of sin that was referred to in chapter 6, verse 23. This is the law and its dominion over all men while they live. Then verse 2, he gives us an illustration of the dominion of the law. Verse 2, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. So here you have a theoretical illustration, we would call this. You have a man who's married, and you have a wife. Now, he says, the woman which hath an husband. Literally, the Greek word is hupandros, the under-husband, 
the woman who is under husband, subject to a man, in other words, or married. Please open to Numbers chapter 5, where the Septuagint illustrates this term very helpfully for us with the law of jealousy. Numbers chapter 5, page 155 of your pew Bibles, concerning the hupandras, the woman under a husband or under a man. We'll look at verses 12 and 13 and then look down at 20 and 29. Numbers 5, 12. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him. Now this is very important to illustrate. The word it's using concerning her is hupandras, under a husband. What is the transgression? But she's going aside. She's going outside of his authority. She's departing from the law of her husband here. Or at least she is suspected of doing so. Committing a trespass. Verse 13. And a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witnesses against her, neither she be taken with the manner. In other words, she's known now to be pregnant, but not by her husband. And he has this jealousy or this suspicion that she's committed adultery, that rather than be hupandras, she goes aside from under his authority. In other words, verse 20. This woman is charged by the priest after the whole ordeal is done. But if thou hast gone aside to another instead of thy husband, and if thou be defiled and some man have lain with thee beside thine husband, here again she goes aside and defiles herself. Verse 29. This is the law of jealousies when a hupandras, a wife, goeth aside to another instead of her andros, her husband, and is defiled. Now of interest is that the New Testament does not have a word for husband or for wife. It has the word andros, which means an adult male, and it has the word gunaikos, which is an adult female. And when in the context they're joined together in these ways, then they translate it wife and husband because it's appropriate. But this word hupa andros is as much as our word wife. And here notice, this wife goes aside. She goes out from under the dominion of her husband. She is defiled, therefore, by committing adultery. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. He's using the same exact word concerning the woman in verse 2 of Romans chapter 7. Please turn back there to Romans 7, page 1138. So he says... For the woman which hath an husband, to her living husband emphatically, is bound by law. This woman, he's emphasizing the characteristic of the husband. He is alive. He is living. Zonti is the word. From where we get our word zoology, those things that live. Zoe, you may know a girl named Zoe. It's the same word. It means one who is alive or lively. Her husband is still alive, and she's bound to him, it says. Now, this word bound is like with a chain. Some people in derision of marriage refer to their wives as the old ball and chain. 
because they don't like to be bound. They don't like to be tied to something. They complain about it like the wimps that they are and losers that they are. They don't like the idea of responsibility. God says responsibility is good for us. God says these are bonds of holy matrimony and wicked, satanic, godless perverts say, no, I don't want to be bound. God thinks otherwise. The wife, it says, is bound by the law. The law is like a chain to her that ties her under the authority of her husband. And this is perfect tense. She was bound in time past and she continues with those bonds to this day. In other words, she is bound by law, he says. Okay, so while her husband's alive, she is under his dominion. Just as we are under the dominion of law, our whole life, or that legal arrangement, all the time we live. Then he says, But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Now, binding and loosing are biblical terms. Where a person is chained, they are bound. When they are freed or redeemed, they are loosed. In this case, it's the bond of matrimony that is loosed. Again, if the husband be dead, this is what we call the subjunctive mood. It's where something is possible or under certain circumstances these things take place. It's a conditional, assuming in the mind of the author that this isn't real. This is a theoretical scenario we're talking about. He's not talking about two people that you know. He's talking about an idealized representation of a man and a woman. If the husband, the andros, if he should be dead, on this supposition, what happens? She is loosed, he says. That is the legal effect of his death. In fact, if you don't believe in divorce, then you don't believe that people stop being married when the other one dies, because that's what he's saying. The loosing from the bond of marriage we call divorce. And it is affected in the Bible in different ways, here by the death of one of the parties. In this case, the husband. The husband dies, and she is loosed. This is, again, a passive verb, something the law does to her. She doesn't do it to herself. The law affects a loosing for her. She's not bound to the husband any longer. She doesn't have to die and go into the grave with him. There is no eternal marriage as the Mormons feign. No. She is loosed. And also, it's a perfect verb. The loosing happens at a point, and she continues in the state of looseness, not bound to her husband forever, in other words. The marital tie is severed, not bound any longer. This is an act of God. Remember, God joined them together, as he does all husbands and wives, and therefore only he can loose them, according to his words. In this case, his word says that when someone dies, the other is loosed from the law of marriage. Or in this case, for the wife the law of her husband or the law of that husband, the, the husband in the illustration, in other words. That tie that held her fast to her husband as a hoop andros, one under a husband, that economy, that arrangement, that law is loosed. It's done because he's dead. Then verse 3. He's going to make a conclusion from this. So then... If while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. So 
then. Now this is the language of inference. I'm going to make a conclusion. That's what he's saying. Sometimes you'll read the word therefore or wherefore or so or thus or in order that. These words will indicate some kind of arrangement with what went before and what he's stating now. This is how we use in ordinary discourse and language. We indicate to people listening or reading what we say, and they can say, okay, now he's drawing a conclusion. What's the conclusion? First, there has to be this law of marriage that we consider to be intact till death do us part. But then, supposing one of them dies, there's a loosing from that bond of marriage, right? That's what he said so far in verse 2. But now... If we want to talk about while her husband's still living, what's going to happen? Is she going to be free and loose from her husband while he's still alive? So then, while her husband liveth. This is the case that we're going to suppose. She shall be called an adulteress. Or literally, adulteress emphatically, she shall be called. He wants to emphasize the shame of a woman who departs from under her husband and commits adultery. And this word called is no ordinary calling. This word means to bear a title or to be known or notorious as. She will be a notorious and known adulteress, in other words. Publicly labeled, known by her reputation. All the infamy that goes with that infidelity to her husband and disobedience, that will attach to her name. That's the idea of the verb here, krematizo, to be known publicly. The Geneva notes say, she will be an adulteress by the consent and judgment of all men. All men who have the light of nature intact, not perverts and reprobates, who try to erase the light of nature and pretend that the seventh commandment doesn't exist. No, they'll think she's fine. They'll pat her on the back. They'll cry with her and feel sorry for her for being an adulteress. But everybody else with a brain that they can rub two brain cells together will say, that's an adulteress. She must be known and publicly humiliated for her crime. Okay, so if she be married to another, he says, she may go through the form of a marriage, she may live as if she had the rights and duties and privileges of marriage, but she's actually an adulteress, Paul says. This word married is a very interesting term. It's from the verb to become. It's where we get the word Genesis from, ginomai. If she becomes another man's, in other words, she acts as, as if this other man possessed her as she were his hupandrast, as if she were under his authority now. She does those things that are suitable only to marriage. This woman is an adulteress. Okay, now the word here for another man, remember there were two words for other in Galatians 1, another of a different kind and another of the same kind. The false gospel is a one of a different kind, not another of the same kind. This is another man of a different kind. A whole different person is now supposed to enter into this relationship. And she becomes his. She goes over, is made over to him, as if his wife, she is an adulteress. But, he goes on in verse 3, but if her husband be dead, she is free from that law. 
So the husband, again, is supposed in the subjunctive mood. In this case, if it were so that he died or became dead, in this case, this hypothetical marriage, this expiration on his part is also freedom from that law. The law, the economy, the covenant, the arrangement of this marriage. This economy, this arrangement, this covenant of marriage binds the woman under the authority of one single man. The two are made one flesh, but upon the supposed death, she's made free. She no longer has that obligation. Dixon calls this the matrimonial covenant of the law, in fact, that Adam was brought into by God. It goes on. So that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. So the first supposition is her husband still lives. She goes to another man as if she's the wife. That's adultery. She's labeled and known by all of sound mind to be an adulteress. But in the case that her husband is dead, the law of marriage ceases. She's no longer under that law. And therefore, she's free to marry another man. As in this case, she is no adulteress, not at all. The facts of the case are different. The resulting status of this theoretical woman is changed, no longer bound to a husband, but freed from him. And therefore, the result of this supposition of freedom is that she is no adulteress at all. She does not have the crime. She does not have the shame, though she be married to another man. Same exact language as he used in verse 2, or earlier in this verse, of her going to another man, becoming another man's. Same language here. The same exact thing has happened, only in the first case, the husband is supposed to be alive. In the second case, he is supposed to be dead. Now verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law, by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, did you notice the change in the illustration? Who brings forth the fruit in the marriage, the husband or the wife? Well, it's the wife. And who is the husband, Christ or the church? Well, Christ is, obviously. We are hupandros. We are under our husband, Jesus Christ. He is the authority over us. But notice, who is it that dies in this case, in this theoretical case, now transitioning over to the gospel? It's the wife who dies, not the husband. He does not refer to the law as having died. He refers to us as having died to the law. It's very interesting how he switches it. Now, it has the same effect. What theoretically applies in the case of the wife also theoretically applies in the case of the husband. The marriage is nullified. The bonds are undone and loosed so long as the supposition is one of the parties has died. So here he says, making conclusion, wherefore, ye also are become dead to the law. You have died to that arrangement, to that marriage, to that dispensation, to that covenant, you might say, the matrimonial covenant of the law, you have died to that, he says. And how, pray tell, did that happen? 
What is it that caused you to be dead to the law? Now, that's passive. That's done to us. We are become dead. God, in other words, or Christ more particularly, he's the one who killed us. He's the one who caused us to die. And how did he do that? By his body. The body of Christ, represented in the Lord's Supper, broken upon the cross. The body of our new husband slew us so that he could revive us again. Please open to Galatians chapter 2. God willing, we'll look at this next week. Galatians chapter 2 in our scripture reading. But here we'll look at an excerpt from it. Page 1175 of your pew Bibles. This is a consistent teaching in the New Testament and throughout the Old as well. Galatians 2 verse 19. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice there, the apostle says that by means of the law, he died to the law. Now, how is that? What does the law tell you? Do this and live. Don't do this and what? You die. And when our Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself a body, and when he offered that body up upon the cross, those united to Christ by faith, what happened to them in their relationship to that covenant of the law? Nailed to the cross. They were crucified together with the Savior so that when he died for their sins, the law's power and dominion over them was broken. No longer under that covenant of works. No longer do this and live, fail to do this and die. Rather, because Jesus was crucified and I united to him, I was crucified together with him, Paul says. And so are we. We are dead to that legal arrangement whereby we must be justified by our deeds and doings. No, rather, we are justified through faith, through believing in Christ himself. Christ was crucified, I was crucified with him, and therefore my status before the law of God as being justified or condemned by it is no longer determined by that former husband. Through the body of Christ, he says, that's the means by which you believers at Rome have become dead, were slain in reference to that arrangement of the law. To be either justified or condemned by your own deeds no longer. Please turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 concerning the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at a a few verses here, starting at verse 3. Hebrews chapter 10, page 1213 of your pew Bibles. Hebrews 10, 3. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins, 
every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but what? A body hast thou prepared me. Think about this. Do you think anyone in the Old Testament who was a true believer actually thought that their sins could be expiated by a bull or a goat or the sprinkling of ashes of a heifer? Do you think they actually thought that their sin before God, they're created in His image, they sin directly against Him? Do you think that they really believed that that little animal, irrational beast, being immolated on the sacrificial altar could somehow take away their sins? Of course they didn't. They were taught not to believe that. They were taught to do the ritual. They were taught the faith that instead of this lamb, there will be a substitute from Abraham that will come in your place as it came in the place of Isaac. And instead of you dying and God saying, take and slit his throat, pour out his blood, instead of you being sacrificed and condemned, God will send a ram. God will send a substitute. God will send a Passover so that you who deserve to die will not die. That's what they believed. And here we see it. Wherefore, verse 5, here's the logical conclusion. Because it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Because that's the case, Scripture says, our Lord said in prophetic language, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body hast thou prepared me. The very nature that sinned, the very nature that entered into that covenant of works, the very nature that must die and be destroyed will come and make satisfaction. Verse 6, In burnt offering and sacrifice for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the what? The body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is the word hapax in Greek. It means once and once only. That's it. If there's a word in our New Testaments written in Greek that is used once, they call it a hapax legomena. A once and once only spoken word. And you look through your Greek concordance. Show me the 17 or 18 times this word appears in the Bible. You'll see one. Just once. Hapax. Christ offered up his body once for all, never to be repeated, only one time throughout the whole course of history. Unlike what? The sacrifices of the law, which were offered how often? Morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, once a year. You can have a special sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. You can offer up a lamb on the special occasion of your redemption out of Egypt, the Passover lamb. And every morning and every evening and twice on the Sabbath in the morning and twice on the Sabbath in the evening, sacrifice day after day, telling you what? It didn't work. It didn't take. It's not good enough. 
And when Christ comes into the world, is his sacrifice good enough? Yes. God says, Amen. This is my beloved son offering up his body upon the cross to sanctify all of his people. And it worked. It did not need to be repeated. It did not need to happen a second time. There is no mass There is only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and a memorial observed in the Lord's table. This is the means by which we were put to death. This is the means by which the hold, that that legal arrangement, that matrimonial covenant of the law held us in bondage and Christ comes and abrogates it. He cuts the tie. That's what Paul is talking about. This is what Romans 7 is dealing with. It's telling us that we are no longer justified by our deeds. This is the conclusion, you might say, of the whole argument about justification by works versus by faith in Christ alone. It all sums up to this. Jesus died for our sins, and therefore we do not have to pay for them in a covenant of works. That's what he's saying. We are sanctified by the offering of his body. We are crucified together with Christ. We are therefore put to death with respect to that legal covenant. Please turn back to Romans chapter 7, if you would. Romans 7, now on page 1139. What is the goal and design of God by having us become dead to that old husband. He says that ye should be married to another. Think about that for a second. God put you, the wife, to death, severed the bonds of matrimony to the law, and his purpose in doing so is that you could be married a second time lawfully because the chain was cut. The bond was undone. You're now free just as much as if the husband had died when you died with Christ. Therefore, you are now married to another. This is God's purpose. The word that, es ta, unto this, this is God's purpose for doing so, for causing you to be put to death. And what exactly is this other that we're married to? He says, to him who is raised from the dead, or the one from the dead emphatically having been raised. This is again one of those periphrases where God refers to someone in this kind of circumlocution. In other words, this is a name of Jesus Christ. We call him Jesus, Christ, Emmanuel. We call him the Son of God. We have various names that we describe our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's one of them. Him who is raised from the dead. That's the name of Jesus Christ. Him who has been raised from the dead. And guess what his wife's name is? Mrs. has been raised from the dead. Jesus is the husband. We are the spouse. We are united together with him so that we partake of his name. God put us to death so that he might raise us with Christ and cause us to be united to him. That's the idea. United in his death, joined to his body, crucified with Christ, planted together in the likeness of his resurrection. Chapter 6, verse 5. 
We are put to death with Christ. We are raised with Christ. The old husband has no more authority. The new husband has taken us by causing us to die to the law and then marrying us to himself. Now, God has purposes and he has purposes on top of purposes. So when you read verse 4, that ye should, okay, there's one purpose. And then notice what else, that we should, another purpose. Why did he purpose the first purpose? So that he could purpose the second purpose. And what is that second purpose? He says that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Why did we die by Christ's body? Why were we joined together with Christ in the covenant of grace? Why was that old husband and the tie we had to him severed? So that we could be married to another, even him raised from the dead, so that we could bring forth fruit. Now, fruit in the context of marriage always refers to children. The fruit of a marriage is the children of a marriage. Christ designs that his people in the analogy of marriage, would bring forth children, so to speak. Please open to John chapter 15. What is the fruit of our marrying the Lord Jesus Christ? John 15, page 1085. Our Lord tells us specifically, this is the vine and the branches chapter, starting at verse 14. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Now that is a harsh statement. If any human friend ever implies that or states some version of that, you know they're not actually your friend because they don't have the same authority Christ has. If you do whatsoever I tell you to do, yes. That's how Jesus knows if you're actually his friend, is if you are willing to do absolutely everything that he commands. That's how you know you're his friend. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, And that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Okay, so notice here. What is it to bring forth fruit to Jesus Christ? What is the sort of fruit that he expects? Well, he starts this discourse with the idea of the the vine and the branches and the fruit. You have to be united to him to bear fruit. But here he gets to the specifics. Here, you know if you're my friend, if you keep my commandments. And then at the end, the things that I command you, that you love one another. That's how you know you're bearing fruit. The fruit that God requires of his people is described in Romans 6 as obedience unto righteousness. Fruit unto holiness. God requires that his people be holy because they're united and married to him. A wicked, a disobedient, 
A mouthy wife, is she an honor to her husband? She's a dishonor. She's a disgrace. But a woman who fears God, who respects her husband, who speaks well of her husband and obeys his commandments, she honors his authority, doesn't she? She lifts him up. She builds him up. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life, the Bible tells us. And so we, as the spouse of Christ, and each of us individually as united to him by faith, he says, bring forth fruit. That's the purpose for which you have died to the law. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You see how ridiculous that question is. You've been united to Christ. Your Mrs. Him who was raised from the dead. And now you're going to tell me you're going to go back to the law who was your master in sin having dominion over you. And the law said, do it some more. I know you can't do it, but keep doing it and maybe you'll be justified someday. Nope, you couldn't do it. In the squalor, in the bondage, in the filth of your sin, you couldn't get yourself out of that. So Jesus comes along and puts you to death, raises you from the dead, unites you to himself by faith. You are his spouse. And will you go on living in dishonor to the commandments of your husband? Will you cast off his authority? As we saw from Numbers chapter 5, she was hupandras, and then she steps aside, she goes aside, and is defiled in her wickedness. No. God has designed his purpose is such you should be married to another so that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Doctrines and uses then from these verses in Romans 7 verses 1 through 4. The first doctrine. There is no escape from the curse of the law but through Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no other game on the block. Christianity has a systematic monopoly of truth and a systematic monopoly of salvation. That's it. Christ alone has the words of eternal life. Christ alone has freedom from the curse of the law. The dominion of the law is over a man as long as he liveth. You must die then, must you not? if you would be freed. And how will you die? By the body of Jesus Christ. Only in Christ is there freedom and escape from the curse of that broken law. First use of information. The natural man is under a legal dispensation, a legal marriage. He's married to the law. He is without hope in this world. And a threat of eternal death hangs over his head. Isn't that miserable? No hope in the world. Doomed to die. Under the law. This is is the case. The law hath dominion over a man. It is his Lord. It demands his perfection in obedience. And not seeing it, it threatens him with death. This is the case of the natural man. This second use of rebuke. There is no freedom for the natural man. There is no patriotism, liberty loving. What does the natural man think of when he thinks of freedom? I want to do what I want to do. That is the devil's version of freedom. 
That's to wallow in the mire. That's to be a pig thinking you're free because you're eating lots of slop. No, you're eating lots of slop so that you may be slaughtered and destroyed, ground up into sausage, made into yummy food. You're not living high on the hog so that you can be great forevermore. The wicked spring up like grass, we sing. How is that? So that they may be cut down. This is a rebuke. There is no being good enough for salvation. There is no cooperation with the grace of God. There is no freedom in ungodliness, only bondage. Use three of exhortation. There is no escape from the curse of the law, but through Jesus Christ. Would you then be free from the bondage of the law? Would you have the chains broken from that former husband? Look then to Jesus Christ. Look to his broken body upon the cross. Flee to him for refuge and be made over to another. Second doctrine. Union with Christ is both in his death and his resurrection. Verse 4, ye are become dead by the law, or to the law, by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. Notice the wisdom and skill of the Holy Spirit. He joins together both the death of Christ and his resurrection as our two major things that cause us to have eternal life. Your sins are canceled by his death. Your life is secured by his resurrection. You're joined together by marriage, so to speak. And therefore, in that union with Christ, it is both to die to sin and to live unto God. First use of information here. We embrace the whole Christ. There's no resurrection life without death to the guilt and punishment of sin. And I will tell you, I will warn you, there are perversions of the faith that sell people on a new life without death to sin, without the forgiveness of sins, without even confessing your sins. Let me illustrate. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay, so I've got good things coming in the future. That's it. You want your best life now, believe in Jesus, everything will get great, you'll get rich, happy marriage, obedient kids, everything's going to be wonderful. That's telling you, you'll be raised to a new life. But what about confessing your sins? What about repentance? What about acknowledging that you are a violator of the law and therefore guilty before God and you must turn from your sins? No, they won't tell you that. They'll give you one side of the gospel. Now you can live a new life. You can be a moralist and now you can follow the virtues. But as far as that forgiveness of sin stuff, that's kind of contingent on how well you do in the moral part. We'll make your justification off in the future somewhere. Maybe you'll get to it sometime, but you got to be good enough and live that resurrection life. Yes, but what about this? There's a, there's a ditch on the other side. You can be forgiven, you wretched, miserable, awful sinner. And you're still a wretched, miserable, awful sinner. Keep on repenting. And, well, you know, this resurrection life over here, we don't preach that part. We just like this part about how miserable you are, you wretch. Well, am I a miserable wretch? Yeah. 
Absolutely. That's what God says. That's the proper characterization. Has God said that's the end? No. Now he says, you are Mrs. Him who was raised from the dead. You are united in the power of his resurrection. You're married to another, even him who is raised from the dead. We are united to Christ, the whole Christ, the Christ who died for our sins as our priest, the Christ who reigns now in heaven as our king. We do not choose between the offices of Christ or the blessings of Christ. We are not justification-only Christians, and we are not sanctification-only Christians. We are Christians who believe that we are justified freely by His grace, by believing in Jesus Christ, and we are raised to newness of life and holiness so that we should not continue in sin so that grace may abound. We embrace the whole Christ. And I urge you to accept our Lord Jesus Christ for all that he is and has done and is doing and will do. Do not accept a partial Savior. He is a prophet to teach you, a priest to atone for your sins and intercede for you, and a king to rule over and defend you. Be joined in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. Bring forth fruit unto God, which is holiness, obedience, and love. And thus far the explanation. And as a reminder, in the coming weeks we'll look at the applications concerning marriage that are within the text. I didn't deal with any of those doctrines or any of the applications because we'll take an extended maybe three or four weeks to look at the Bible as a whole in its teaching on marriage, divorce, remarriage, duties of husbands, duties of wives. But for now, focusing just on the text and our union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.